Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Talk Recorded live. Hi, everybody. Today is January 18th, 2016, and this is The Mixed Experience. It's a weekly podcast by a mixed chick sharing mixed thoughts about a mixed-up world. I'm your host and resident Miss Chick, Heidi DeRoe. And today we have the most superb, excellent, fantastic guest to kick off the new year, and, and maybe any year. But this is, this is the guy you all want to know, and now you get to talk to him. Um, I'm so excited to have him on the show. I've known him for a long time, and now he's blowing up, and yay! All right, a couple of announcements first, though. You guys know about my passion project called the Mix Your Mix Festival. It's happening June 10th and 11th in downtown Los Angeles at the Japanese American National Museum. We um, are planning and we are very excited to get all of the submissions that we've already received, but we did, in fact, extend the deadline. So if you're still interested in submitting your work as a panelist, as a writer, as a presenter, as a performer, we're still looking for submissions until Valentine's Day. That's an easy day to remember. So you still have a little time to get in that work. Just go to www.mixedremix.org. And by the way, once you're at the website, why not just click that little button that says Donate? This is an all-volunteer project. That means nobody gets paid whatsoever, not a dime, not a thing. And we do this on a shoestring budget. We beg, borrow, and barter for everything we can, but there are things that still cost money. And the prices of things are rising, and our costs are rising in different ways this year, also because we've added an additional day to the festival. So if you could donate any amount, that would be fantastic. Your donations are tax deductible to the full extent allowed by law since we are now a, an official 501c3 organization. So, with all of that said, www.mixremix.org, don't forget it, let's get to the real meat of the show. Um, I'm so excited to have Sunil Yapa here on the show today. I've known him for many years now, and he has just blown up at this point. Like, if you didn't see the New York Times book review this weekend with his giant advertisement for his wonderful book, go look at it, and you're going to feel closer to him as well. Uh, also with a great review in the book review this week as well. Let me tell you a little bit about him. Neil holds a bachelor's degree in economic geography from Penn State University and an MFA from Hunter College. He's the biracial son of a Sri Lankan father and a mother from Montana. Yapa has lived around the world, including spending time in Greece, Guatemala, Chile, Argentina, China, and India, as well as London, Montreal, and New York City. I am super excited to have him on the show today. 
Welcome, Sunil. Hi, Heidi. How are you? I'm doing great. Can I just say one giant, fantastic congratulations to you right now? Like, is your mind being blown by the reception <laughs> of the book? Yeah, it's been absolutely incredible, beyond my wildest dreams. And I'd like to imagine that it's that people are celebrating the message of the book, which is the idea that empathy can be a radical act. And I, I don't want to jump too far ahead, um, but, I, you know, it's not a book about my experience exactly, and it's about this message. And I think that if anything's being celebrated, it's an attempt to be honest and to inhabit lots of different characters. And I think it's a great moment to be trying to do that. I'm so excited. So I am going to back you up a little bit because I asked the wrong question first. The normal (laughs) question is, what are you? What am I? Wow, I'm a Habsy. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, someone asked me that. You know, I think think that being biracial, our, our identities are fluid and if you ask me on a Monday, I might say Havsy, and if you ask me on a Tuesday, depending on how I'm feeling, I might say a brown American man. Uh, if you ask me on Wednesday, I might say a global soul. Uh, on Thursday, maybe I'll say, you know, I'm just a person of color. You know, so there's multiple identities that we, that we inhabit in different spaces. Well, now you get to uh, be a phenom debut novelist. I didn't even say the title of the book. It's Your Heart is a Muscle the Size of a Fist. And it was just released last week. I understand it's sold out in Canada in a day. So hopefully they've got the press moving again. Um, (laughs) Tell me a little bit about the genesis of the book and when you started it. Because I like these stories. People think you're an overnight success, but didn't it take Uh, about decades? Yeah, well, it took about six years, and, and I'm I'm 38. Uh, people seem to think I'm younger. I, I don't know if it must be the glasses, but uh, <laughs> yeah. It, and and even before that, I started it. I've been writing for about I don't know 12 years, but on this pro this project, I started in 2009 when I was in grad school, and I was sort of casting about for ideas. Colin McCann, who was my professor at Hunter, incredible teacher gave us a lot of tough love, and he killed two of my sort of nascent novel ideas. And the, the second one, he, he invited me over to his house and made me a cup of tea and, and a piece of toast, and I thought, oh, my God, he doesn't like the novel <laughs> idea at all. <laughs> so I guess I came across this idea, it was about March 2009, and as I was starting to investigate it, I came across a picture a series of pictures. One of them was of a woman, red hair, on her street, Anglo woman, uh, on her knees in the street at the Seattle protest, surrounded by other protesters, and there's a stranger tending to a wound on her forehead. And it just really struck me. I wondered, what has changed in the world that this woman is at this protest and is willing to be beaten by, by a cop and get hit by a baton or to be tear gassed or be pepper sprayed not to expand her own rights, but to for the, you know, out of compassion and to expand the rights for a kid three continents away, maybe someone making shoes in, in Sri Lanka or in Bangladesh, you know. I thought that was an amazing moment, and it it really filled me with a lot of um, compassion for that person and, and, and respect for the courage that it took to be in the protest, but also I was confused. I thought, what's she doing there? And so... <laughs> 
I want to, you know, so you spend a couple of years unpacking that and trying to figure it out. Well, uh, this took a long time to write. Uh, there was also some heartache along the way. You had a whole draft of the novel, and it was stolen in your computer. Yeah, yeah, that's. Uh, it was rough, but it's all, it's it's on me. I mean, I didn't back it up. Back it up, people. Back it up, right? <laughs> Yes, I finished, yeah. yeah, it took me two years of writing and, and drafts and drafts and drafts, and I finished what I thought was a, was a good draft, 604 pages. I was living in a little beach house in Chile, and I didn't have any uh, an internet connection, uh, you know, so no cloud, I didn't have a printer. Um, I actually hid my laptop in the oven in a baking tray when, <laughs> when I left the house. <laughs> that was my security measure. <laughs> Uh, funny enough, it didn't get stolen in Chile. It got stolen when I came back to the U.S. And I was, I, I worked as a traveling salesman for a long time, and I was in Chicago in a hotel room, and someone broke into the hotel room and stole my backpack, and it was the only oh. copy of the book, and it was just gone. Well, what what kept you going at that point? I mean, I I can't even imagine. What? I remember I did I dropped my computer once, and I think I was deep into the seventh draft of The Girl Who Fell from the Sky. And oh. I, for seven days, I was devastated because I thought it was gone. But I had a friend who was a, a computer guru genius, a uh, file whisperer, I guess. And she was, able to find, <laughs> <laughs> she was able to find the file. But how do you begin again at that point? It's so funny. You know, when you tell it, I think, oh, my God, that's devastating. When when I tell it, I, I don't remember it exactly. I I spent about three months in a sort of hole of college basketball and Netflix shows, you know, like <laughs> trying – no, quite literally three months. I didn't think about anything. I laid on my dad's couch and just sort of moaned. Um, and then the weird thing was it started bubbling up in my head again, like – yeah. technical decisions or certain characters. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to write this stupid thing again. And I set out to do that, and I had pretty good notes. Um, so I was sort of recreating the project I had lost, and I, I, I got quickly got very bored with that project. And so I really re-envisioned it, and I think that was for the better. Now, looking back on it, it took about four years from that point. Um Looking back on it, it was an incredible blessing. I, it was a sort of really ambitious, unwieldy, idea-driven manuscript. There were 60 characters in it, you know, and mm-hmm. now, there, now there are seven. So it really forced me to think, who do I care about? And who are who do a reader is going to care about? And so these are the people that really moved me, you know. And to be honest, if you're going to write a book, you better really care about your characters or, or it's going to be just such a grind. Well, because you're spending time with them in in your mind and your imagination and your heart. Uh, Of course, of great interest to me and a character I loved was Victor. What was the genesis of Victor and how did you decide who he would be? Victor was was interesting. I think he's obviously the closest to me in the sort of superficial details. Um, he's biracial, although he's his mother is African American and his father is Anglo, um, whereas my mom's white and my dad is from Sri Lanka. But he shares a lot with me in terms of being biracial and 
that sort of perpetual outsider, insider status. And, and he's 19, so he's still, he really doesn't ever self-identify in the book. So he's still struggling to figure out what community he belongs to and where he belongs. And the book, in some ways, I think rereading it, man, I must have been lonely when I wrote it. Because I, I think of Victor oh and I want to give him a hug because he's so <laughs> desperate to belong somewhere that he's willing to join the protest, which he, he wasn't had no intention of doing, he, and has no training. And, he, and because the protesters accept him and give him love, he puts himself into the most vulnerable position you could possibly be in, which is locked down with your arms in PVC pipes in the middle of an intersection, clogging it, waiting for the cops to come with their tear gas and pepper spray. I mean, that's how yeah. desperate he is to, to, to find a home. Well, I, I really felt the same way about him, that I wanted to I wanted to shelter him. I wanted to protect him somehow because he was just so um, willing to be raw and vulnerable. Like, you know, he had his literal whole self on the line and no regard necessarily to how much danger he was in. He was yeah. okay with that. Um, I love that character. I mean, I loved all the characters, but I have to say, and I know you've said it in a, a lot in other interviews, but when you were writing it, you were also very attuned to the fact that you wanted to write a story that was enthralling, that people wanted to turn the pages, and you have definitely done that. What was the – okay, so I'm, this is a weird question. That's okay. I'm a weird, I got a weird answer for you. This is the writerly stuff. like. I had that same feeling when I was writing The Girl Who Fell From the Sky. I was like, I want people to read this. Like, I want it to be really good, of course. I want it right. to be literary. I want it to be beautiful. And you have, like, so many beautiful lyrical moments in your book that I... I so do you. You, you, wrote a, you wrote an incredibly beautiful book, Heidi. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. And then, but at the same time, like, there's this pull to make sure that... A, readers, like regular people readers, will want to read it. Did you feel like there was any kind of tension or compromise in what you were doing because you had both objectives going on? Mm, I didn't feel like there was a compromise. I will say this, it takes a long time, right? Yeah. It yeah. took me yeah. a lot longer, particularly because there were seven characters. So I think one of the things, I'm a try, I mean, why do people read books, right? I, I read books. The, my first love in reading was language, I think. But I also love, um, like, a ripping story. I love a good story. And I, and I, but I really love characters. And that was one of the things I discovered when I went from 60 characters to seven. And I don't know why it took me six years. And I went to the London Film School. I did a year at the <laughs> University of Houston. And it was a long and crooked road until I figured out, and a lost manuscript, before I figured out, oh, fiction, I read because... I really care about the people I'm reading about and I'm experiencing right. the world through their eyes. And so I think that um, writing a literary page turner, I mean, really all that means is that you spend the extra time to develop a story and you also spend the extra time to pay attention to your sentences in a very intense way. Right. I think that's totally true. Like it's for me when I'm writing, I often think, I'm, what I'm doing is enchanting, right? So it, it has to right. 
to sound a certain way to, to maintain that rhythm inside the reader's mind so that they get to that same magical place where I am once I, you know, put the period at the end of the paragraph. And uh-huh. the spell can easily be broken. So, yeah, it takes a really long time to do that if that's what you're demanding <laughs> in paragraphs and sentences, of course. And yet, and yet the thing that I wanted most was for it to be this kind of book you could read, you would spend all night, you, you couldn't put down, and that you could read in a couple of days. You know, well, I, I don't know I that that's... I don't that's know if that's the right. highest goal, and I'll continue to do that, but, but I wanted to do that with this book. And so it's so ironic that it takes six years to do that, and then you can read it in two days. I've always found that so funny. <laughs> I think it's cruel, because people will write me and say, I just read your book in three hours. When's your next one coming out? I'm like, it ten years. <laughs> I mean, Did it really take you ten years? Yeah. Yeah, it took ten years to write it and to get it published, and then in between to become the person I needed to be to write what I wanted to write. Oh, my God, that's so true. Right? Like You were saying, oh, my gosh, I must have been so lonely when I was writing this and not even understanding it. And for me, I was, I think, in a very deep process of grief for I don't even know exactly what yet. And maybe that's what's playing out in the in the book I'm writing now. But yeah, there's like this whole process of growing up that goes with the growing into the writing thing. Um, yeah, I agree. I, and that's that's a technical question. You know, for me at least, how do you technically write a novel with seven characters? It's actually really tough. But but it's also an emotional question of. Where am I? You know, the first drafts I wrote were satires. I made fun of the protesters. And I was like, that's not at all what I want to do. Why does it keep coming out like that, you know? And same with the cops. I would make, I would write funny cops or I would write, David Foster Wallace warned us a long time ago about, we watch so much TV as writers, you've got to be careful not to just rewrite what you saw on TV. You know, and I found myself, yeah. right, especially with cops, right? I found myself writing characters. I'm like, this is, am I writing The Wire? Like, am I just writing what I've seen on TV? <laughs> you know, and I think you have to hold yourself uh, to the fire on that question. And really, um, one of the ways that I found a way into cops that, for me at least, felt more believable um, was I found radio scanner traffic. I, I went to Seattle, and I found in the archives five days of recordings of all the police actual radio scanners. So so listening in on their totally intimate conversations with each other and listening as they went from calm and authoritative to totally scared because they were they were overwhelmed. There there were sixty thousand protesters and only nine hundred cops. And when I started hearing the cops being scared, I guess I started having a little more empathy with them and they became more of a little more human to me. That that sense of vulnerability in all characters is that right. grace that you give as a writer, and, and it's also the gift given to you by the character. Uh, if you that's can right. ask that, you know, I you know, I'm, not to belabor this point, well, yeah. but I wanted to tell one more story, which is the Sri Lankan delegate. I wrote him first. He was the first character I wrote back in 2009, and because he occurs in these intermissions in the book, I never really looked at his stuff all that much when I was editing it. I just thought it was it was good. He was kind of um he was a diplomat but he was a bit of a um 
a bit overwhelmed by the luxuries of the West. So he was mm-hmm. he was ordering oysters and he was buying expensive shoes in Paris and he was doing all these funny stuff. He was like almost comic relief. And when I went back, you know, four years later and kind of really looked at him again, I thought, wow, what did I do? I wrote a satire of the Sri Lankan character too. And it was uh, it was one of those really powerful, humiliating, shameful private moments, which I just shared with everyone on the interwebs, when I, when I thought, what do I think of my own people? What is this? You know, it's like writing has this way of bringing out your, your sort of um, unexamined beliefs, right? So it yeah. puts it on paper. And so then I got to examine it, and I thought, that's really weird. Where did this come from? And I, and I could think I could give you a couple of answers, but more importantly, I fired that guy, and I went back and I thought I need to have models of really positive people of color working in the third world who who could fill my imagination with someone who's not a buffoon, but with someone who's full of dignity and respect. And so I went and you know I I, um, I watched a bunch of movies about Nelson Mandela, who is just I mean, it's a cliche, but he's such a deep inspiration. The man spent 40 years on Robben Island and yeah. in other places imprisoned, and he comes out and counsels compassion? I mean, that, I still don't understand what kind of strength it takes to do that. Well, we're talking today on MLK Day, and on the radio, at least here in L.A., they're playing program after program about his life and legacy. And, you know, I, I wonder, can we be inspired by that kind of energy again? And, and maybe it's starting in smaller ways, like as a more diffuse Black Lives Matter movement, for instance, uh-huh. or the uh-huh. you know, protests that are happening now. But I wonder, is there a way where we could be that large in our wishes for change in the world? I mean... I feel like we, we have to make lists now, with, like wish lists of what would we like changed, you know, as opposed to let's, let's clear out the house. Like now I'm sounding like a radical. I used to be a radical. <laughs> <laughs> when I didn't well, isn't that funny? It, isn't that an interesting thing to say? I used to be a radical because it seems like so many of us in our 20s are on fire. And what happens between our 20s and our 30s or our 40s what happens to that fire? And, and I would point to one of the things that happens is we, 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 try, we, we have this habit of attacking these sort of really large-scale abstractions like I want justice or I mm-hmm. want to dismantle capitalism. And I'm not, you know, that's a really difficult enemy because it's just a word or it's just an idea. And I really, I really, really believe and I think that Dr. King was work, was moving towards this later on in his life. I mean, they, obviously they had a very specific goal of winning, you know, voting rights and, and just expanding the, the amount of civil rights for African Americans, for all people of color. Um, and that was very specific. But they also, you know, the goal of, let's say now, ending racism. I think you have to break these problems down away from the abstraction and break it down onto a much smaller scale and a human level and really ask, what can I do directly in the world around me in, in, in a much smaller circle? Let's say 10 of my friends that are the clo- my closest friends. How can we affect change in the world? What can we do? And then, right. you know, because frankly, Heidi, I'm like, 
I'm so tired of watching. I don't watch the debates. And I'm so tired of asking politicians to fix my problems. Do you know what I mean? And, yeah. and I'm not saying the political isn't an important sphere, but it's really just one sphere. And I feel like we put 99% of our energy there and then we all get burned out. And I wish it was, let's say, 10% and we had nine other places to do our work. Well, you're, you're doing the work as an artist. Um, for me, that actually is still a challenge in terms of thinking about making stories as uh, social justice work. But I think it very much is. Are, are you feeling like the reception you've got for the book so far has recognized that it is, you know, it's a protest novel, right? But it's also a great story. <laughs> but it's a protest novel, nevertheless. It, like, this is a story uh, with characters who have not been talked about much, who are complicated and complex. And they're going to inhabit like white people's imaginations. Do you mm. feel like the book is getting the the attention it needs on that level, or or I don't know, or what? <laughs> yeah, I, I I mean, I don't know attention. You know, I, I guess there's attention of people reviewing the book, and and I'm very happy about that. But I'm personally, I'm much more concerned or pay much more attention to when specific people either talk to me about the book or send me emails or, you know, I have the pleasure of visiting Seattle or, or, or I'm about to go on tour. And it's that personal connection that really matters the most to me as an author. And I have been getting emails from people that have just blown me away that, uh, that they are getting that message. And, and um, I would say, you know, if you said, I guess Amazon shelves it under political. I think all that kind of stuff is is really for the publicists and the bookstores. And as writers, we don't need to worry about what category it falls under. And I think that, um, is it a political novel? I actually don't think it's political in the sense that I'm espousing anyone's philosophy. I mean, we inhabit, uh, you know, a 19-year-old biracial kid. We inhabit, uh, how old is his dad? 69, a 69-year-old. Anglo-American police chief and everything in between and the Sri Lankan delegate. And so for me, I think, yes, if empathy is a political act, then yeah, it's a political novel. If, if trying to inhabit the, the skins of, or the genders of people that are different than ourselves and not just have a conversation with different people, really inhabit their experience and walk, walk a mile in their shoes, if that's yeah, political, definitely. then it's a deeply political novel. But I actually think that's what we all do. That's called reading, right? Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, hopefully that's if you're reading those kinds of books, that's what's happening. And, and that really is the idea behind the festival as well, to not necessarily celebrate mixed-race people or mixed multiracial families, but to really allow people to enter into story so that they can mm. recognize how connected they are. So I, I think I've That's told this story before in the chat, but I remember my first book reading ever that I gave in Vermont. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, they're all white people here. They're never going to get this story. And then I, right. I talked to the people afterwards for the book signing and the book sold out and everyone was so lovely. And probably half a dozen of these people came up to me and said things like, you know, these white people, quote unquote white people, said, "My sister is half Latina. Um, you know, my 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 
brother just married a woman from Africa, from Kenya, or, you know, our grandchildren are biracial and they live in Los Angeles. They're going to come to the festival, you know, like. um, Amazing. The way of, the fact that you've been able to write this story and it's on the main stage of American culture right now, it's so exciting to me because I think this is, this is when the conversation about race and culture changes. It's when mainstream white people recognize themselves and their own challenges and aspirations and dreams in people that they don't see themselves as, like, on a daily basis. So, yeah, I think that's totally, that's totally radical and political and awesome, all of it. <laughs> and it's all tied up in a, in a literary page turner. Isn't that great? Yes, a literary ter- page turner. It's fantastic. Um, yeah. I haven't asked you enough about your mixedness. Uh, is that yeah. it comes up for you almost daily still or not so much anymore? Oh, uh, yeah, I would say it's daily. It, You know, I'm still in some ways an adolescent about race. I think I was... Uh, and this will, this is absurd and sad and very, very true. I was probably 21 before I really realized I wasn't white or what that meant. And that's mm-hmm. crazy to me. But that's wow. part, for me, that's part of the biracial experience for me is that, I mean, I knew it in the, of course I knew my dad was from Sri Lanka, but I guess I, I would always say something like, Oh, my dad's from Sri Lanka, but I'm from America. Oh, my God, how colonized was I, you know? I'd <laughs> absorbed that, that thinking that my dad's from somewhere else. And, but, but, you know, so, so I started late in life to unpack that identity. So, yeah, it's something I still think about. Um, I live in New York, you know, so it's not – in New York, I don't, I don't think about it as often. I don't, I don't feel the, any burden or any outsider status being, being mixed race in, in New York. But um, – Nonetheless, I think that I, I think we all have a bit of a double vision um, or a double consciousness, um, which is that you can see a lot of you could a lot of situations. You can see both sides, you know, and you can you can be inside the situation and outside the situation at the same time. Which, by the way, is a great place for a writer to be. Yes, definitely. Your story is almost the opposite of Matt Johnson, who basically just came out as biracial a couple of years ago to to himself. Not that, right. you know, we, we all weren't looking at him going, what's going on there? He looks like a Croatian football player, but um, <laughs> he calls himself African-American. I only say that because that's how he has described himself to me. Um, but he has been struggling with what does it mean then to connect his identity and story with whiteness that, Right, right. You know, hasn't hasn't been a, a popular thing to do. Like we haven't allowed mixed race people to be that complicated before. I'm not sure we still are yet, but at least some of us are out there talking about it, which is good. Yeah, I guess I guess when you put it that way, that it that's absolutely something I still struggle with. Um is is which which community do I belong to? You know, there's days when I feel like I belong to, I'm so lucky that I get to belong to multiple communities. And then mm-hmm. there's days when I feel like I'm excluded from all communities, you know. Yeah. And, and I think that that to me is something that I've said to other um, biracial people or mixed race people and 
seems to resonate with them as well. Yeah. Well, Neil, you're about to go on this giant book tour. It's already started, but it continues on and on and on. Um, I'm going to put a link up on the Mixed Experience site, but it's also just on your website, neilyapa.com. So you can go. Great. And, um, people should go out and check you out and get a book signed and meet you. And um, so I'm going to put you on blast here a little bit. We would love to have you at Mixed Remix in June. So maybe we could talk about that more offline. Uh, so that sounds great. I've, I've, been, I've been wanting you to invite me for years. Uh, I, I've been wanting to invite you for years. but And now I finally have a book, so we can do it. Now the book is here. All right, so it's done. Yay! Book <laughs> Yay. <laughs> um, Neil, thank you so much. Congratulations. Thank you for, for doing this hard work of years and years and years. I'm trying to say this over and over again because a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are people who want to write or are writing and they get frustrated yep. and they don't realize, like, a great book like this comes out of a lot of pain and it's, a lot of pain. It's hard. It's yeah, hard. it's a lot of work. Uh, it's it's butt in, get your butt in the chair and keep it in there. You know, five days a week, six days a week, just just grind it out. And and I think the best advice I could give to to a young writer, to myself as a young writer, is let yourself be bad. Let the first draft be bad. You know, I mean, like you, I, you just said you had yeah. seven drafts or, or or more for your book, which I is have an incredible many, many book. More than seven, yeah, yeah. Yeah, mine must have had honestly forty. I mean, you just you work it and you work it and you work it and you work it, and that and it's okay. The first the first one's bad. That's not a big deal. You, I I know that advice, but you've just given me permission again to finish a draft <laughs> of this horrible second manuscript I'm working on. But so we'll see. Thank you. Don't worry about it. I mean, no, you're welcome. Thank you so much. It was a, a huge uh, pleasure to talk to you about about this. I can't wait to talk more in June. Oh, I have a shy listener who's actually in the chat room, but I guess she didn't have a question for you. But, hey, Loveland, um, Neil says hi to you, too, by way of me. Hey, how are you doing? Thanks for listening. <laughs> All right. Well, I will talk to you again very soon and have some fun on the road, but not too much fun. Not too much fun, just a little bit. Okay. All right. Good okay. Time. Thanks, Heidi. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Oh, my gosh. He's great, right? Yes, he's totally great. The book is fantastic. It's called Your Heart is a Muscle the Size of a Fist. It was reviewed in the New York Times Book Review this weekend. Great review. Great, great reviews all around. I actually have them in front of me and meant to read some, but I didn't want to embarrass them. But they're all like, it's a literary uh, page turner. It's a, tour de, a genuine tour de force, it says here in the Seattle Times. Uh, it's, you know, been called the most exciting debut around, and and the good news is he's such a nice person. He's a good, decent, lovely human being, and he's coming to the festival in June. So hang your hats on that, people. I'm very excited. Okay, so that's our show today. I'll be back next week. I hope you'll tune in. If you want to send me an email, send it to Heidi at HeidiWDuro.com. I'd love to hear from you. Or tweet me, at Heidi DeRoe. Um, also, I'll make sure I get links up to Sunil's site on the mixedexperience.com site. And in between, guys, um, take care of yourselves and take care of each other. And I hope you're celebrating, at least in some small way, 
in a way that honors MLK's legacy today. So thanks for joining me. I'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.